I struggled with this one because I want to track really closely to Christopher Ash's book on this chapter. I think he's really good on it, but Derek Thomas has some great stuff to say as well. So I'll do a little bit of bouncing back and forth at the beginning, and then for structure organization-wise, I'll stick with the wisdom of the cross. Fear. Fear is powerful, right? We talk often about the worst decisions that we ever make are the ones that we make out of fear. But there's a, fear has its value too. There's, there's, there's something good that God can do with fear and, and giving us a right fear of evil in this case so that ultimately we realize that fearing God is the only thing that can save us from all of the other fears. This is a, a speech about terrifying evil. And it's going to get to the heart of what God's first speech did not answer. God's first speech really focused on the the power that God has over the world that he's made, over the created order, and, and touched a little bit on that there's a place for evil in that created order. But it was it was Evil was just one of many things in the mix that God had made from the, from the two-horned ox, this powerful beast, and the, the war horse, even to the laughable ostrich. Uh, the, the created order is subject to God's power and control. And Job responded to that, recognizing the unreasonableness of his point of view. Where Job said, I could run the world better than God could. I understand things better than God could. Job's response to the first speech is, is short and sweet, but it's about his, his, it was unreasonable for me to take that perspective. It's not reasonable to criticize the uh, Almighty. And so God is going to go into a second speech here. And I just want to point out, this is, This is my favorite kind of thing that happens in the whole Bible. This is why Jonah 3 is my favorite chapter and verse 1, favorite verse in the Bible. It's a God of second chances. Job goes off for all of these chapters about the ways that he is right and God is wrong. And God comes to him and presents this speech that should have made that point clear. But Job's conclusion is only that Job's response wasn't the best. It wasn't as good as it could be. It wasn't logically reasonable. And instead of God saying, fine, I gave you a chance. I'm done with you. The word of the Lord comes to the prophet Job. Not really a prophet, but you know what I mean. A second time. And he's going to give a second speech. And the point of this speech, or the intended impact on Job, is for Job to recognize that his accusations against God are not just unreasonable, they are sinful. Job doesn't just need to become learned, Job needs to repent. And that's what we're going to see in the speech, and then what's going to come as an effect of it. And so it's important for us to think, you know, Complaining about our circumstances, is it right or wrong? It depends on what you mean by complaining. 
but probably the answer is yes, it's wrong. Because probably what we mean by complaining is grumbling about our circumstances. Telling God that we don't deserve these circumstances, we deserve better circumstances, why won't God take these circumstances away? How could we possibly be content or happy until our circumstances were different? That's what Job did. And in fact, Job goes the step further because he gets so worked up in believing his own narrative that it's not just he can't be happy and content until his circumstances change. It's this isn't even a well-run world. How could I be happy and content in a poorly run world? It's not my fault, God. It's yours. God is very patient, even as he points out to Job the fallacy and now the sinfulness of that answer. And it's important for us to think about when we grumble about our circumstances, are we simply saying, I don't like this, how long, oh Lord, please take this away, which is okay. Psalmists say that a lot, and it's not sinful. Paul prayed that the Thorn would be taken out of his flesh. You're allowed to say, I don't like this. God, would you please change this? But what happens when you say, this isn't right to me? I deserve better. And in fact, I would do better. In our grumbling, we need to be careful that we're not telling God we could run the world better than he could. The world would be more well run with us at the helm than with God. Because that's been Job's accusation, and that's what's going to happen in this speech. God is going to use irony and humor, and he's going to say, Okay, Job, I'll set aside my godness, and I will take off my royal robes, and I will put them on you, and you run the universe, and let's see what ha- what's happening. And it's not like God is saying, hey, Job, you think this is so easy. I'm doing the best I can over here. You give it a try. It's not that at all. It's, Job, you have no idea what you're saying. You have no idea. Not just what's required to run this universe, which is my power, but what's required to bring about good in this universe. And so he's going to give Job sort of this, this metaphorical chance to run the world. God is ordering everything for Job's good. And that includes everything Satan is doing. And he needs to bring Job into that picture a little bit so that Job could see there's a lot more here than what meets the eye. And it's a lot harder and more complex than he thinks. And so in order to bring Job into the picture that God is using even Satan to bring about good purposes, he has to take Job to Satan. He has to give Job this terrifying, fearful vision of evil. And that's what's going to happen in this speech. Um, It is common in literature, in movies, one of the ways when you want to make someone scared, when you want that visceral reaction of fear, is to have some terrifying wild beast, right? <laughs> because we know you can't control it. You know, Cujo is no joke. <laughs> um, what's the one in Hound of the Baskervilles? 
that demon dog, I mean, literally, a demon dog. <laughs> um, dragons in, in movies. Uh, this idea of an uncontrollable, unrestrained, violent, irrational beast is one of the things that people have gone to for thousands of years for a picture, of, for a fear-inducing picture, for a way of creating fear. There was a real example of this. I can't remember if Ash mentions it in the book y'all are reading or in the longer commentary. But 2007, there was a, uh, a New Zealand fishing boat and fishing crew that hooked a, a giant fish in the deep waters off Antarctica. And as they were hauling it up, they realized that something even bigger was attacking their fish as bait. And so it ends up in this hours-long battle before they finally haul aboard the ship a 39-foot-long squid weighing 1,000 pounds. If you made calamari out of its tentacles, I kid you not, the rings would be tractor tires. Yes! (laughs) 25 razor-sharp tentacles. Um... There are real terrifying creatures in the world. And what we tend to do uh, in the realm of myth, and not not bad myth like uh, false religions, but real myth, like making up stories to paint beautiful pictures of of reality, um, is we take those creatures and we make them even crazier. (laughs) We make them even more fearful. And that's part of what's going to happen here. God's going to use a couple of familiar mythical creatures that have similarities to some earthly creatures, crocodiles, hippopotamuses, hippopotami, whatever. Um, But he's going to to cloak them in even a, a more supernatural type power to make the fear even more stark. And, and the point is not you should be afraid of giant squid, although I would encourage you to be afraid of giant squid. The, the point is how do you respond when mind-numbing, terrifyingly evil things happen in the world? Most of the terrifying evil things we will experience will not come in animal form. There will be things that happen. They will be done at the hands of human beings. They will be uh, systems of, of sin and of evil. They'll be consequences of the fall, medical diagnoses. The, the worst things for us to fear will probably not be animals. But the question remains, what do you do? How do you think? How can you respond in the face of such overwhelming terror. And that's what the speech is going to get into. Questions about the theme, and now we'll get into the structure. Go through it. The bottom line of everything you just said is God can and he won't. That's what, that's what, that's what we're struggling with. He can and he won't. And we, our response must be your will trumps. So, when we pray, there is no reason to sit there and give God reasons 
for our will because he already knows those. He's already considered those, and he's vetoed that with his will. And it's not a popularity contest, so it's not like you call all your friends and say, could everybody pray for this because God's counting numbers, and once the scoreboard hits this number, he's going to change his mind. That doesn't work. So the point of prayer is just acceptance of who God is to allow him to make No, that can't be right. It can't be right because of the persistent widow. You see the problem? The, 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 the two sort of tweaks would be, um, it's not, acceptance is not enough because he's not just getting Job. If acceptance was enough, God would have stopped after the first speech. Job's response to the first speech is, you know what? You're right. You're God. You can do whatever you want to do. I'll shut my mouth. If God were satisfied with that answer, God would have stopped there. But God goes deeper and goes into a much darker speech. And the response he gets from Job must be correct because then he turns and, and blesses Job. So there, there must be something to learn in what, what happens in the second speech that includes the acceptance that you said, because that's a critical starting point, but that's not enough. There's something more. So that would be one, one, one tweak. And then the other one is the persistent widow problem, which is just a hard one that we hate a lot. What's the difference between persistence and stubbornness? Uh, it's a line somewhere, right? Yes. It, 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 why, why am I persisting? Am I persisting because I will not be content until I get my way? Or am I persisting because I am convinced with every fiber of my being that the thing for which I am praying is good and God is not saying no, he is delaying. And my persistence is what's propelling him forward. But then God knows. I mean, he knows if it's persistence or if it's stubborn. That's right. And, I mean, the, the challenge of prayer in general right, is, is our rational instinct is, is to say, if God already knows, why pray? God's going to do what he's going to do. Why do I bother praying? And there's a bunch of answers to that. But the, the shortest, somewhat flippant one is because he tells us to. And so God has decided that a means through which he will do what he was going to do anyway is prayer. I can decide that I'm going to get a new house. And I've got multiple options to choose from in terms of how I'm going to get a new house. I can go buy somebody else's house. I can pay a builder to build a house that did not exist. Or I can go with my bare hands, well, a more competent person, could go with their bare hands and build a house. I have means to choose from. God accomplishing his will, he also had means to choose from. The what he's going to do, which isn't going to change, he's going to do what he's going to do, how is he going to do it? He had lots of options to pick from, and he tells us plainly in Scripture that the option that he's chosen is the prayers of his people. It gives our prayers life. It gives them purpose. And our prayers have this amazing effect of changing us and reorienting our focus and our minds and, and drawing us into that, that acceptance plus whatever's coming. But that's why we have to pray. But Jesus didn't change his mind. Jacob didn't change his mind. There's a, total, a ton of people that were persistent that didn't cause God to change. That's right. Persistence doesn't mean that you're going to get the thing for which you are praying. But persistence is not sin, and stubborn discontentment is sin. And what 
makes the difference between one and the other is something only God can see. I think your friends and family can help you see it. I, I will say that. I think people who know you and know what you're praying for can help you. They're not infallible, so they could be wrong. But it would be advice worth getting. Um, I've told people before. Uh, I'll use an example of work. I've, I've talked with people who are extremely discontent with their work. And so much so that you see as a result this real grumbling, lack of gratitude for the work they have, bitterness toward the work that God has given them. It can turn into laziness of, I don't have to do a good job because this isn't a good job. You can see all of these things come out. And I've had to say to those people, do you, why would God give you better work? You're not even grateful and faithful in the work you have. I've never seen God pull somebody out of miserable circumstances when their heart is discontent. I have seen hearts flip toward contentedness, acceptance plus, and then God changes their circumstances. I've also seen people flip their heart toward contentedness, acceptance plus, God doesn't change their circumstances, and that's okay for them. And then you become sort of the Job part of like, man, God, I mean, don't you, their heart got good. Why don't you change this thing? Why don't you do something different? And they're not even the ones saying that anymore. We are. Can you imagine that if you were with the Apostle Paul, you're like, God, look at what this guy's doing. Look at the influence he's having. You put him in jail? You gave him this thorn in his flesh? No. No, if I were running the world, Paul would be healthy and wealthy and have big audiences and be well-received. And then the gospel would fizzle out just like any other man promoted religion. So yes, I think, I think Kathy, you, you hit on what the first speech tells us. I think we're going to see something deeper in the second. Uh, all right, it starts with an accusation. And then based on that accusation, God will challenge Job. And then he's going to use two mythical portraits he doesn't repeat the challenge at the end. God's speech just ends with the Leviathan story. And then Job's response to the whole thing. The first speech was about God's government of the world, what, what Job and God both called his counsel. The second speech is concerned with his justice, the rightness or wrongness of the whole thing. And that's why the first speech ends with Job acknowledging that his position was unreasonable. Ash calls it sobered and silent. Job has kind of seen the truth better now, and the result of that truth makes him silent. That's the acceptance. But the second speech is going to end with Job affirming very strongly a truth about God, not silence, affirmation of a powerful truth about God, and therefore a declaration that he has a much deeper experience and much deeper walk with God now than he did prior to this speech. 
Whatever happens in this speech is not just going to teach Job something new. It's going to give Job a closer walk with God because of what he comes to understand, because of what he hears. So the second speech, the first speech is about sort of the natural order uh, and God's power over that natural created order. It had hints of the supernatural, but mostly natural. The second speech is going to portray supernatural agency in, in these vivid images of these two creatures. So let's work through it. Kate, will you read? And the first speech was 38 and 39? Uh, that sounds right. Okay. The second speech starts at 40. Second starts in 40, verse 6. Yep. Okay. The, the textual cue is, then the Lord spoke out of the whirlwind and said. You'll see that phrase repeated. Kate, will you read 46 through 8? Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Ah, now we've gone a level deeper. The first speech had that first line. I'll question you, and you make it known to me. But look at what God says here. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? You see, Job is seeking to justify himself. I don't deserve this. This isn't right. I would do better than this. The result, unintentional in Job's mind, but the result of that self-justification is what? Condemnation of God. It necessarily says God is doing it wrong. To say I would do it better is to say God is not a very good God. And so God calls him out on that here. That Job has impugned his justice and that that is not going to fly. So then on that basis, he issues a challenge. Andrew, can you read 9 through 14? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and debase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Find their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. So this is the challenge. All right, Job. You have a go at being the judge of all the earth. You take my place. I'll take off my royal robes. I'll put them on you. You just let your anger at injustice pour out. And let's see where it gets you. Let's see where it gets the world. And that's the rest of what Andrew just read is this, this sort of, how, how do you think that's going to go? Even when you do that in your current form, because we do that in our current form, we let the anger of injustice pour out from us because we could make things right if people would just do what we told them to do. Speaking for a friend. How does that, does that do anything? No. It doesn't bring forth justice. It doesn't bring forth good. We, we can't undo evil. We can't unmake people's evil desires. We can't reverse the consequences of their actions. We just don't have that control over evil. Neither does Job. And Job has no idea what it will take to conquer and subdue evil forever. You would not have put Jesus on that cross. 
I mean, in one sense, as a sinner standing at the cross screaming, give us Barabbas, you would have. But if you were running the universe and you said, I'm going to do good things and make a good universe and make this place right, you wouldn't have put Jesus on the cross. You wouldn't have sacrificed your own son. You wouldn't have. You're too selfish. You would have, you would have said, no, that's, that's evil. I can't use evil to do good. You would not and could not have done what it takes to put evil underfoot forever. Even if you had the power, which you don't, you don't have the goodness. You wouldn't have done it. And so only the death of Christ can destroy evil. Only God is good, powerful, and wise enough to have done that. And so by analogy, all the other good that God is doing with all the other evil is in the same bucket. You could, you could use evil to save yourself. We do that from time to time. You would use evil to save those you love, if you could. We do that from time to time. But while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us? No, you wouldn't. You're kidding yourself. You're kidding yourself. So we have that Christological perspective. God's not going to give Job that yet, but he's going to make exactly the same point. You, you should be so thankful that it is I, God, running this universe and not you, Job. And instead of grumbling, you should draw closer to me. Instead of running away from me because I'm not safe, you should draw closer to me because I'm the only safety there is. You want to know fear, Job? Let me show you fear. And so we get these two word portraits of fear. The first one is the behemoth. Uh, Daphne, can you read 15 to 24? Behold behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold his strength in his, his, strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees cover him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, through Jordan, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? The first portrait is of the behemoth. The, the word plural seems to be like a, a plural of the word for majesty. He is this super beast, is the phrase that Ash uses. A creature that's powerful, is hardy with an insatiable appetite, uh, tremendous strength and virility. Uh, and Job is invited in his mind's eye to behold this thing. Just look at it. 
just close your eyes, Job. And we don't know how this happened. We don't know if Job heard a voice. We don't know if God uh, gave Job a vision. God speaks uh, in the Old Testament. God spoke to the people in multiple ways. That's what Hebrews 1 says, that in the former times before Jesus, God spoke in all sorts of ways, dreams and visions and voices. So we don't, we don't know what happens. We don't know if God actually showed it to him in a vision or if he closed his eyes and God explained it to him and he, he was able to picture it. But he's invited to behold this creature. And the creature is called the first, the, 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 uh, the preeminent one. And yet, all throughout that description, it's clear, however powerful he is, and whatever position he has as the first, uh, his maker has power and authority over him. It says he can come near it with his sword. His maker can still express dominion over it, subdue it, keep it in its place. And even finally... To kill it. You have this creature that is always present and always hungry in verses 20 to 22. This is why I say the Lord gives it sort of a supernatural aura. We've started with, with a mythical creature based on putting together the most powerful traits of a bunch of other creatures that really do exist. And, and, and this is a, a well-known creature, the behemoth um, uh, is, is known in ancient mythology. This isn't just a Bible thing. It's, and so God takes this mythological creature and, and he adds to it this nearly, uh, not divine, but supernatural types of attributes. And, and he is always there and he is always being fed. And, and it's this powerful, hungry, super beast who is completely untamable and uncontrollable by humans and yet is made by God and controlled by God. We'll come back to that after we've talked about the Leviathan, but that's the, that's the point of the picture of the behemoth. All right, the Leviathan gets an even longer description. 34 verses about the Leviathan. I mean, this is almost up there in ostrich territory at this point. Well, we're given how many words to this creature? But he begins with a a sequence of questions that should be shocking, that should be a slap in the face to Job or a cup of cold water in the face, something to wake him up. He's going to talk about the Leviathan. We know that Job knows what the Leviathan is because he talked about the Leviathan in chapter 3. We know that uh, other places in Scripture know what the Leviathan is. I'll come to those in a little bit. But again, this is a well-known mythical creature. This one gets a lot of use in the Bible. <laughs> and, and we'll come back to it. But this is a common one that God uses in his word to describe certain concepts and ultimately to de- describe a certain entity who is not the Leviathan, but the Leviathan makes a great uh, uh, well-known metaphor or picture. Again, we're talking about powerful, uncontrollable by human evil forces here is what we're dealing with. So let's start with the accusations. Nathan, will you read 1 through 7? Can you draw out the Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? 
Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Job, you know what the Leviathan is. Can you do anything with it? Can you harness its power? Can you make it a pet? Can you catch it and sell its flesh for profit? No. Job knows he cannot do any of these things, and it starts to put him in his place. Uh, It's absolutely insane for a creature, a human being, to think that we can control evil. That that we can harness the powers of the universe, natural and supernatural, to get the, the outcomes that we want. And yet that's been Job's claim. When he says he can do it better, he says, God, with all the resources in the, in the universe, natural and supernatural, I could use them for better outcomes than you have. And God says, talk about the Leviathan for a minute. See where we are. Noah, can you read 8 through 11? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He's laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who is first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the forehead is mine. Hey, hey, Job, why, why don't you wrap your arms around that, that evil, that powerful force, and uh, go, go to war with it. See, uh, I suspect you won't forget what happens. I suspect you won't try to do that again. Because any idea that you can win is make-believe. It's exactly what he says in verse 9. It is make-believe. The hope of a man is false. You can't do it. And there's a, at the end of verse 10, who then is he who can stand before me? It's just this interesting little aside for a second. It's not even going to be the main point. It's like, by the way, while we're talking about standing in front of things that you can't control, while we're talking about standing in front of things that will evoke utter terror, from you. That's a creature. You're standing in front of a creature. You're standing in front of cancer. You're standing in front of a broken relationship. You're standing in front of death itself. And you are terrified. How much more terrified should you be standing in front of God? And yet we waltz right up to him and we say, You don't know what you're doing. 12 through 24, I'm going to skip over for today's purposes, but it's just this this lengthy description of the Leviathan's strength. Lots and lots of, if I was teaching the class more dramatically, we would read it and we would dim the lights and we would have some smoke come up in the room and some red lights or something because the point of all of this is that you should be afraid. This is a a powerful creature um, that ought to be handled with fear and reverence. And yet this creature, the, the fear that you get approaching God so carelessly ought to be greater. Uh, what happens when humans attack him? All right, this thing's so powerful. What, 
Where, where do we get if we attack him? Lauren, can you read 25 to 29? When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it is not avail, nor the spear, the dart, nor the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee for him. Sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. Well, that was a giant waste of time. <laughs> right? When we think we can control the, the created natural and supernatural things to get the outcomes that we want, when we go and attack the fearful, fearsome thing in our own strength, it was a giant waste of time. You thought there might be a weak spot there. Nope. Turns out that weak spot is, uh, is impenetrable. You thought these weapons might be effective. I was just thinking through. I don't want to say them out loud because individuals would think I'm picking on them, and I'm really not. So take a moment yourself and think through. What are the weapons that we use to attack the things that make us afraid? They're not swords and spears. They're idols. They're things that we go to for security and satisfaction. They're things that we use to combat what makes us afraid. And those are our weapons. Those are the swords and the spears. And they're utterly useless. Somebody sitting back would, would laugh at us. It's like we're, we're, we're balling up tissues and pelting a dragon with them. That's, that's the effect of what we're doing when we rely on, I'll let you fill in the blank, to overcome the fear. Fear we're going to get uh, we're going to get old and sick and die. Fear that um, people aren't going to accept us. Fear that we're going to be poor and not be provided for. Fear that we're going to be alone. All the fears, we have these swords and spears that are not quite so sharp uh, and they don't work. So the description uh, verses 33 and 34. Renee, can you read that? On earth there is, not, there is not his life, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of God. You guys recognize that verse? We sing it in a hymn somewhat regularly. It's the end of a funny joke, which is, you know, one time that I was visiting a different church and they were trying the I guess the sermon had gone long and so they were trying to cut the service short and they said we're only going to sing the first verse of the final hymn and the final hymn was a mighty fortress is our God and the first verse of that hymn ends with this verse praising Satan's power on earth is not his equal and I was like and now we go home <laughs> Satan is powerful good night everybody <laughs> yeah that's what this is from on earth is not his equal not as like a creature without fear. He's unlike all other creatures. And that's why, you know, we, we've inflated this creature. God has, God has expanded the, the mythology so far that the mythology is now going to bleed back into truth and reality, which we'll get to in a second. Um, w w there's this uncanny valley for us where we can see things as they really are on earth. And then we start to overestimate their power. And then we get a better perspective, and 
but when it comes to the supernatural, we greatly underestimate its power. So even our myths about the supernatural don't make the gods and godlike things big enough. Our views of angels are puny. They're not real views of angels. <laughs> Greek and Roman myths about gods, they're not godlike. They're Marvel characters, right? They're, no, we, we underestimate that. So what's happened is God's taken a myth, he's exploded the myth to make it as fearsome as it should be. And then what we're about to see in a minute is once you do that and you get to the right level of the power of evil, uh, you're not in myth anymore. You're back to reality. And Job should be more scared of saying that he could wrap a lasso around it and get it to do what he wanted it to do than he actually is. Um, I mean, look at that language, 33 and 34. He, I mean, he, he is afraid of nothing. He is king. He, Ash says, he is the one that can really say, I am the greatest of the created things. And that's the end of the speech on the Leviathan. God's done talking. So somehow, from what God just said, Job gets to the right place because Job's response is going to be good. God is going to put his stamp of approval on this response when he didn't put it on the previous one. So what is his response? Well, it comes in three parts. Kathy, can you read 42, 1 through 6? And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, that language that Job uses woven in there is a callback to God's first speech, right? Some of those specific phrases, therefore I've uttered what I did not understand, uh, hides counsel without knowledge, is a callback to God's first speech. So Job's response here is a response to the whole package, where Job is saying, oh, I thought I understood the first speech. Now... I understand the whole thing. I understand what you're saying. And it's in three parts. First, what Job affirmed already, that God can do all things and no purpose of God's can be thwarted. At the word level, in terms of Job's doctrine, he has never doubted that. And you've seen that come across all throughout Job in his responses to his friends and even in some of his darkest moments, Job has been able to utter the words of acceptance that God will do what God will do and cannot be stopped. He's, it's not been easy for him, but he has known that to be true all along. Now he knows it in a deeper and fuller way. Now, now that God has done the catalog of the whole created order, heavens and the earth. Job has a clearer picture. He, he has a head and heart belief that God is God. I mean, it's the thing we've got to get is the godness of God. So much of our problem in how we think, feel, and behave 
is that we're not really knowing God as God. We've made God smaller than he is. We've made God different than he is. God is not all powerful or God is not all good or God does not love me. We've made God something other than what he is. And Job knows that now in a deeper and fuller way. He knew it all along. Now he says he knows it more deeply. But the second thing is in verse three, he's learned something new, something that he did not know. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And that is that the Lord has shown him his sin. He admits here that he is guilty of exactly what God has accused him of. He's guilty of putting God in the wrong to justify himself. He's guilty of saying, I could have done this better. You're not running a very well-ordered world. And Job has been able correctly to deny every accusation that's been made against him in this book. All the friends' accusations Job could deny correctly. He was not guilty of the things they accused him of. Oh, you're harsh with the poor. You made your money through schemes and illegal things. You've got all of this hidden sin, Job. And Job denied it all. And he was right to deny it all. He did not do those things. But then Elihu comes along and says, you know what you are guilty of, Job? You're too big for your britches. You're putting God in the wrong. You think that you could run a well-ordered world, and God cannot. And that's why Elihu's so mad. How can you say that about God? This random person is standing here saying that they're better than God, and you're not supposed to be offended by that? So Elihu's pretty worked up. And then God comes, but but Job doesn't get it from Elihu. And Elihu kind of warns you that's going to happen, because he says, look, Job, I'm just a man like you, but God's told me some things I feel like I should tell you. And Job's not hearing it, fine. So God will come and speak directly. And now Job says, yep, you're right. I have said things that I shouldn't have said. I've accused you of things that are wrong. And I have spoken as if I understand things that I do not understand. And and we do have to be careful. I just want to say on both sides of this, for the sufferer, there can be sin in claiming they understand things they don't understand by saying this isn't right, this can't be good, you know, by having that really fixed mindset of negativity, this is not good. For the comforter, we need to be careful we don't do exactly the same thing from the positive. Look at all the good that God is going to bring from this. Don't you just know that he's going to, and then we start doing what? Speaking words we don't understand. (laughs) We're making stuff up just like they are, but we think that because it's good things instead of bad things, that makes it better. And what God's saying is, don't make stuff up about me. You don't know what I'm going to do. You can say you know it will be good. You know why? Because God said it will be good. But you can't say what it is. We love to tell people what it is. Think of all the people that are going to be in that. You don't know that. It's not unreasonable to hope that. It's good to pray for that. But when you tell people what God is going to do, you're speaking words that you don't understand. Third thing, and I just I want to read from Ash here. It's a little, it's two paragraphs. It's really good, and I don't want to paraphrase it. Third thing, finally, in verses 4 to 6, 
Job echoes God's introductory challenge to both speeches. I will question you and you make it known to me. Prefixing the echo with the words, hear and I will speak. His focus now is on what he heard when God spoke. In one of the most famous verses in the book, Job contrasts a previous hearing with a new seeing. That's verse 5. Before the terrible events of the book, Job's knowledge of God was by the hearing of the ear. In the context of the book, this must refer to the framework of understanding that he shared with the comforters and with so many morally serious philosophers and theologians throughout history. He has heard the traditions of these people. The assured results of their traditional understanding has come into his ears from childhood. He had heard that there was one God and that this God was righteous and all-powerful, and therefore certain things will be expected morally in the world, crime and punishment, virtue and reward. All of this he has heard by the hearing of the ear. But now my eyes see you. God's most important purpose for our suffering is that through it we would see him. See him. This deeper knowledge and awareness of him that doesn't just come from book learning, even the good book learning, <laughs> to, to know him. It's this experiential Christianity. We think about the relationships that we have with humans that are formed in adversity. We talk about this a lot in the military, right? That, that, that people that serve together in that crucible, there's a certain type of bond that forms. When you go through something hard with someone else, you, you have that closer bond with them because of that experience. That is a teeny, teeny, tiny, slightly blurred uh, analogy that will break down at some point of what God is doing with suffering in our lives. It's how we know him. And you'll see this emphasized in the New Testament when it talks about Christ, that unless we're buried with him, we are not raised with him. That part of our identification with Christ is identifying with him in his sufferings. It's a consistent biblical picture that this suffering that happens as a result of evil should have the effect of helping us, not just helping us, of actually drawing us closer to God and learning and experiencing him in a new way. I have a lot more to say about that, but I'm going to stop there because we're out of time. What questions just on that point? How does that not lead to the conclusion that suffering is good and we should want more suffering for ourselves and others? Do people get there and say that? Do you know people that say that? <laughs> no, because they don't want to I don't do unto others as you want to you. So we don't have to say that suffering is good because God doesn't say that suffering is good. And God promises us a, a life and a world that is free of suffering in the fullness of the kingdom that is to come, the new heavens and the new earth. But I do think there's something way close. So, and we can't do anything sinful to bring about good. The fact that God can use sin to bring about good doesn't mean that we get to sin and say, well, yeah, but it really brought Jake closer to God. 
that time I punched him in the face, he saw Jesus more clearly. Right? Now, Scripture is very clear that we can't, we can't in sin to bring about it. So with those two caveats in place, we don't have to call suffering good because it won't be in the new heavens and the new earth. And we can't do evil purposefully for any reason. Then I think the answer is a lot closer than we like to admit to what you ask. I think it's why James says count it all joy. Doesn't say ask for more. <laughs> Doesn't say force the issue by doing some evil to make it happen. But he does say count it all joy. And it's why Jesus says, blessed are you when. And you really got to understand the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are not Jesus saying, if you do this, you will get that. That is not what the Beatitudes are. No time for that here. The Beatitudes are dispensing of covenant blessings. Jesus is actually the one, he's the covenant judge. He's the one who dispenses blessings and curses. Goats left, sheep right, all that. When he says, blessed are you when others persecute you, revile you, hate you, blah, blah, blah. He's not saying, hey, when that happens, you just remember that your treasures are stored up in heaven and there's going to be some blessing for you in the end. No, 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 no. He says, that is when the blessing is present. Because the covenant keeper, the covenant administrator, is pouring out blessing on you in that very moment. You say, it doesn't feel very blessed. Okay. But Jesus says it is. Jesus says you are blessed when. And then names all these things. So I, I think the answer is closer to that than we'd like to admit, as long as you grant me my two caveats. You can't punch me in the face so I see Jesus more clearly. And no, we don't have to call suffering good. But we have to call God good, his purpose is good, and some of the means that he uses for those purposes will one day be no more. We have to call the suffering for our good. Yeah, because Romans does. Paul does in Romans. But, uh, but as humans, we don't know necessarily what that good is. We do. It's glorification. It makes us more like Jesus. Thankfully, Romans 8.28 makes that very clear. There may be other goods, and those are the ones we don't know. But we absolutely know the verse we rely on, Romans 8.28, all these things for good for those who love God are called by God according to his purposes. If you read the verses in Romans chapter 8, it is telling you plainly that it's talking about your glorification, your being more like Jesus. What is everything God is doing in your life Focused on making you more like Jesus because then you're ready for the day of his coming. You say, I don't, I don't like that experience. <laughs> You've got to be buried with him to be raised with him. Jesus didn't like it either. And Jesus said, if it's possible, Father, for this cup to pass me by, I don't like this. How else could he say it? But he said it's worth it. For the joy that was set before him, he endured. 